I'm Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for coming. Just a quick reminder, if you're new to the channel, uh, please hit subscribe, and don't forget to click that notification bell so you're always notified whenever we go live. We're constantly doing cross-streams with other channels and adding new shows. Next week, we'll be doing our bi-monthly news show with Matt and David of Left Reckoning. Also, just last night, another episode of TIR Presents Gaming Materialists with our very own Jean Bajlan and Varn Vlogs, see Derek Varn. You can also read Jean Bajlan in the Washington Post as he was quoted about the current situation in Iran. Also, Pascal Robert was on Deutsche Wally Valley Deutsche DW. On DW, <laughs> talking about uh, Haiti, and there's a segment we tweeted it out, the YouTube clip of it, um, and we'll probably tweet it out again. I don't know if there's a link in the description, but I will ask our very, very efficient moderation crew if they can share that in the chat. Uh, so wherever you're listening, you should see it in the chat and. We'll also put it in the comments for those that come back and watch the show again. Um, also, Friday, tomorrow, I'll be on the Majority Report Fun Half with Ben Burgess, Matt Leck, and David Griscom doing some advertising for our live show this Sunday. October 23rd at the Telegram Ballroom. Tickets are on sale wherever you are listening to this show. There's links in the description. We, we still have a contest to give out some what looks like meet and greet passes. Ooh, meet and greet passes. Also for patrons, tomorrow we're doing a fun movie night, just like I promised. Uh, there's a Twitter poll up currently. Uh, you can decide what we're going to see. Last I checked, uh, Ninja 3, the domination, is winning. Um, and there's only one way to watch movie night, and that's become a patron. It's easy. And for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the whole year, there's a, year, there's a discount for the whole year. You can have access to all the champagne rooms and, of course, all the movie nights. You can be part of the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert, where you can you know, be part of the conversation as well. We, we read your comments on there, definitely. And we've been taking phone calls for the Mau Mau Hour as well. And also we take phone calls in the champagne room more often than not. That being said, we have a packed house tonight uh, for the show. And like I mentioned earlier in the opening, we're doing a cross stream on friend of show, Derek Farn's Farn vlog channel as well. So let me open up by bringing in my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to Jason Miles. How are you? Doing all right, brother. Um, coming all the way live from a secret location. It looks like he's deep in the Death Star. I don't know what's going on. Uh, everyone's favorite middle management. 
of, of, of the empire. Deep state, Cuba. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, we have a bit of a situation here. Um, an Ewok got loose and uh, got into a power coupling. It's a bit of a red alert situation, but um, I'm a little concerned because the Seawalk was one that I brought in for questioning. So I think I'm going to have to fill out some paperwork. Well, this is where you you want to look at him and say, We're coming for you, nigga! (laughs) But you can't. Uh, it would be even more paperwork to fill out, just a different department. <laughs> That's a whole HR situation that is not fun. Uh, also, you know, she is sadly the lone. I say sadly because I'm sure she wishes she had more comrades than just us dudes. But uh, she is the faceless, headless voice of reason. She is M. Toussaint. Hello, hello. For the boys, man, you guys are are excellent. I do not wish for you to have ovaries instead of anything that you have right now. <laughs> I do That's not wish real. for you to be different. Yeah, I'm a little under the weather today. It's like there's the weather, and then there I am under it. But <laughs> super happy to be here. Uh, and so is the duck. The duck is it? The duck's name again is. Drake. Drake. Drake Pierre. <laughs> Drake Pierre. <laughs> and we, look, before we bring in uh before we bring in Derek Varn, and you know, he, a lot of you guys are waiting to see Derek Varn. And I know this is on his channel. He's a he's a big deal in these in these social media waters. But before we bring in Derek Varn, I want to bring in a person that's been a huge help to this show. Huge, huge help to the show. Um, he's been a part of these new um, intros that you're seeing. He did the intros, I believe, for Gaming Materialists. He does the outro that we play for the show. He helped us with the trailer for the uh, the the, sh- the live show. Um, he's helped with some of the clip videos. He also uh, has helped out or is helping out with the production of the uh, video essay, which we're going to show a trailer for in just a little bit. I'm actually really excited. Today we're going to be debuting the trailer for the video essay, but let me bring in I'm so... Let me bring him in first before I start heaping praise upon him. Please welcome everybody, the Quintern. Quintern has bisexual lighting. This is Quinn's first time on the main show, but Quinn has been a uh, part of uh, Gaming Materialist. So if you guys watch Gaming Materialist with Barn and, and, and Bajlan, uh, you probably have seen Quinn before, but this is his first time on the main show. Oh, where's your sound? I was muted. That's my bad. Um, nah, actually, this is the first time I'm showing my face because Gaming Materialist, my camera was broken. Oh, okay. Look at that. This is the first time he's showing so his, I'm de- his face. I'm debuting my face. Look Quinn. at the phone structure. It has been recorded. Yep. <laughs> Quinn, I want to I want to say this. I want to say this live on air, so people understand the neuroses that is working with me. I need people to understand this. 
before we bring in Varn. And Varn has a little bit of an idea of this, but the people that you and some you don't see on screen know this better than anyone else. Quinn hit me up and said, hey, I'd like to help out with your show. And all I did was have a panic attack when I read the email. And by the grace of someone's God, Quinn continued to check in with me. I mentioned Quinn to Gene Bajlan, and Gene Bajlan was like, great idea. I believe I mentioned Quinn to Pascal. He was like, great idea. And I was sitting back there going, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> so finally, I was like, I want to meet you in person. Quinn happens to live on the East Coast. And I met Quinn at the live show in New York. And it was it was kind of an instant uh, took took a liking to to the to the guy and he has fit in like a hand and glove with this motley crew uh, that that we have put together here at TIR and I made a, a post the other day and I and I really meant it because we get to have these conversations that you guys don't see um, we we like to jokingly call them production meetings. But it's just these very large shit talking sessions um, that, <laughs> that Cuba is not a part of as much as he used to be uh, because he's busy detaining Ewoks. But um, they're, they're some of the, the best conversations uh, that I have, and they usually pull me out of whatever doldrums I'm going through. So um, I want to say thank you guys for all being a part of this show and. Uh, and making it what it is, whatever that is, um, it cannot happen with me alone as much as I'd like to think that. It takes literally everybody on the screen and some people that aren't being shown. So thank you. I love all you guys. That being said, another person that actually is a big part of this show, um, he is he pretty much is the sometimes why, I would say. Um, of this show. Uh, recently, this man and I did another, I think a couple hours, bitching about music and politics. And I think we spent the last 35 minutes bitching about politics. Please welcome from Varn Vlog, C. Derek. Hello. Var, the Varminator. <laughs> Bisexual lighting as well. Very That's, nice. It's red, but yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you guys don't I'll just know. Describe my lighting. Varn Kuba, heterosexual. Varn and I, we're all going to be live. We're all going to be hanging out sooner than later. Uh, I'm probably going to see Varn uh, a day before everybody else, as, as he arrives a little early. I'm kind of excited about that. Um, and part of this show, the live show, at the end of the show. Um, is going to be the the chill hangout session where when we're finally done with the live show, we're all going to be mingling with the crowd. Um, there's probably going to be a few people getting effed up. Uh, so, like, we're coming out like the intellectual rat pack. So everyone's going to have a drink in their hand except for me. I'm the uh, rat pack's designated driver. Martin pretending to be drunk. I have a good feeling that everyone's going to be drunk. Yes. I feel water? very confident. That's what it's called, very... right? What'd you say? Ranch, Ranch water? water? Yeah. Yes. Yes. David Griscom. Uh, 
is, is gonna is gonna be making ranch waters. But since I don't drink at all, have you ever had a drink or had two drinks in forty five years? Mm. I had mm. a glass of gin, which was not mm. very delicious. Mm-hmm. And glass, someone gave me champagne. Yeah, should have had a sangria. Who gave you a glass of gin? Like that's a like. Anyway, I I I was thinking the same thing. That's not what you're supposed to drink in a glass. I don't know. Yeah, like, are you an orphan from Oliver Twist or something? (laughs) Born Center Cold World says, "What's your vice, Jason? Fucking up." Oh. I'm really good at that. Excelling it. But yeah, uh, I, so gin is not the way to go. That's like how my first drinking experience was ever clear, which is a way to die. <laughs> but, oh, <wow. laughs> That's a true story, isn't by the way. So, that, isn't that shit that was illegal here for years? It's illegal in certain parts of the country, but yeah. I mean, it's primarily an industrial solvent. Um, you can mix it with things, but you shouldn't really just drink it. So Coca-Cola. I mean, that's better. It's better. It's higher proof than hand sanitizer. Let's just put it that way. Jesus Christ. Jesus. But everyone, I think Pascal doesn't drink anymore. I try not to. <laughs> like that. I, I don't drink more than one drink anymore, ever. I'll have a drink with someone, but I don't drink. I don't drink in mass anymore. Is it bad if you do? You no, I mean it's just. It, I just have a lot. I come from a, a land that has a lot of alcoholics, hence why my first drink was Everclear. Um, yeah. Just, just a little in the baby bottle to shut him up. <laughs> little on the teeth while he's teething. Yeah, that's what that's what your parents say when you have a kid. They're like, oh, just put a little rum on, on his gums? On his gums! Yeah, I was reading about people giving their children laudanum in the beginning of the 20th century, and if you don't know what that is, that's alcohol plus opium. Um, <laughs> like, okay. Stuff. That explains a lot about America. Um, Born with the cherry reeds, boy. Always Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, uh, Quinn and sadly the, the, the young man that's helping me uh, put the video essay together uh, he couldn't be here he's actually working on a shoot right now but uh, around the same time Quinn approached me another young man approached me and said that he liked uh, the video essays and he wanted to know if there's any way he could help me and I was in the middle of doing I had an idea and I was about to write a script. And I was watching a documentary about wrestling. And I had been going back and forth with Toure, Pascal, and Adolf Reed at different times about this idea. About we're living in this era of kayfabe. And when this young man hit me up, his name is Alex. Um, he'll be coming on when we premiere the actual video essay. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, I told him about my idea. We talked back and forth, back and forth, and I just started writing out a script. Um, he 
he was he was looking at the script as I was writing it out, and he really liked it. And uh, we well, I'm done. The, the the verbal part is done. The script, of course, is done. Now we're just putting a lot of the images together. And uh, I wish I could show you guys some of the images I got from the first couple cuts. It's it's pretty powerful. But we knew we were going to be doing press pretty soon, and I really wanted to push this because this is the first one that's feature length. That's how long this is. It's going to be a feature length. And uh, he put together this trailer, and he goes, Jason, I can't really do title cards that well. And I was like, I know who can. And Quinn hit me up about some ideas, and I told him you know, where my head was at. Uh, Quinn also put together a really cool... Uh, Pop Life, the new Pop Life intro is going to be awesome. But uh, I'm excited for you guys to see this. Um, we're going to have a conversation about uh, this this video essay, what you guys think about it. But I think the trailer is pretty powerful. I sent the trailer out to some people. Um, even Sam Cedar, you know, got back to me right away after I sent it to him. He's like, hey, this, this looks really good. So here we go. The trailer to the latest. It's impossible to thank everyone that is responsible for this achievement, which is about to begin. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening. For the American people whose thirst for understanding and a better life has made this venture possible. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. To create a positive force in a world where cynics abound. To offer those who want it a choice. The key word in that phrase is entertainment, for which we think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. For the cable industry, whose pioneering spirit caused this great step forward in communications. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. We will bring a better understanding of how people live and work together. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. I dedicate the news channel for America. see through the facade of fake news. In spite of this, we remain addicted to the political theater that is presented by independent and mainstream media outlets. The veil has been lifted as the general public understands that politicians lie. Multinational corporations and finance capital influence politics. Information is partisan, and we can, with the click of a button, get facts that buttress our own beliefs. Yet knowing all of this, we still can't seem to pull away from this political burlesque. Most especially, we would like to thank you for watching. Yeah, the beat is funky as hell.
So someone asked if I did the music. No, the the young man Alex did the music. Uh, I was so kind of stressed from the last video essay uh, because I was I was a little worried about it. You know, um, black exploitation is something that I think people take almost personally, and you know, going at <laughs> Black Panther towards the end. Uh, I, I don't know. So I was a little worried. But um, yeah, so the, the young man, Alex, actually did the music for that. And of course, Quinn did that awesome title card that I really <laughs> love. That was so much better than what we, <laughs> that we originally had in there. But um, I went back and watched the thing that actually made me go write it. You know, I've been talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. I would call Pascal up talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. But I, I was watching a uh, documentary that's on, uh, you can watch it on Amazon or Vice. It's called Dark Side of the Ring. And they had a special, uh, and they were doing one on a, a black wrestler that wrestled in the ECW named New Jack. And I felt that his character was such a caricature of what America thought a badass hood black dude was. And he ended up kind of in real life getting lost in the caricature um he died recently actually um i believe it was a bit of drug overdose i know they found tons of drugs in his system and he did some horrible things in the ring he he did things that uh he he faced jail time on at least two separate occasions for stabbing a man (laughs) in the ring he cut this one kid's the top of his uh, skin off of his skull and he threw another fellow wrestler off of a 40-foot scaffolding after hitting him with a stun gun. Um, and it just kind of made me go, yeah, this is, this is really, you know, what this kayfabe stuff is all about. There's a great line in that, in that show where at the end of it, because they, they keep asking his name, like his name, real name was Jerome. And they asked legendary uh, wrestling man, Jim Cornette um, about, did he ever know the real Jerome? It was a real Jerome. Like because Jim Cornette got, got him to start in a small promotion Cornette was running Georgia and Cornette goes, you know, I don't know if I ever met Jerome. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I ever really wanted to. And that really kind of hit me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to write this thing out. But, uh, Pascal, I'll start off with you. What is your, what is your opinion about a lot of this stuff? I, you know, as someone for me, I always appreciate an analysis of media, pop culture, capitalism. You know, I mean, you know me, Jason. I'm a big fan of the kind of Adorno, Marcuse, Frankfurt School. But what, for me, the main question I had is that it's become even clearer with the rise of Trumpism that mainstream media decides on what is viewed as acceptable news. How mm-hmm. should those of us on the so-called left curate our media sharing understanding? since mainstream media may target us for censorship. Mm. Do you want to respond, Kuba? So um, the question being, how do we select our sources for the show, or what do we... Not just us here, but Mm -hmm. those of our vocation who try to profess to be truth-tellers. How do we do what we do in an era where mainstream media is so willing to 
basically castigate, neutralize, excoriate, or or censor those of us who are not carrying the mainstream water. For example, regardless of what you may think about what happened at the beginning of the Ukraine-Russian war situation, there were a lot of people, some of whom we would consider left, who lost their jobs at major networks because of what their position was on that issue. That that was a political decision that was being made. Yeah, and uh, for me, I just don't see that much of a discontinuity with um, the typical relationship of the left to uh, media outlets. It's been generations since the mainstream media has paid much attention or given any legitimacy to um, voices outside of the like establishment institutions. The difference being that the personnel that populate those institutions have changed, but um, it's always been hard for independent voices to get any kind of exposure. Um, and there's been these periods of um, political censorship and um, sort of soft purges, like with the Red Scare or with the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee. And it feels like the only thing that's preventing a recurrence, that kind of thing, is that both parties are too anxious that any institution set up by their rival party would target them in an uncomfortable way. Otherwise, we would have already had it. There was that a disinformation bureau within the Department of Homeland Security that Biden stood up for like a week in 2021, I think. Um, so I see this as a continuity, um, and I don't mean to minimize the um, challenges of independent media. Quite the contrary. What I mean to say is, it's not going to get certainly not going to get any better and we're going to have to deal with the same types of obstacles that we've always had. So, I mean, I don't disagree with that per se, but my question is that does anyone have any suggestions in terms of how we should, how do we act within the parameters of that reality? How do we carry ourselves? How do we comport ourselves? How do we do editorial decision-making? Oh, this is a Varn. Look at Varn. He he took he took the swig, so you know he's ready to go in on this one. You get the swig and the and the motions. The editorial decision making is hard. Um, and the the one thing I will say is that we're kind of talking about the mainstream media and the mainstream media platforms kind of simultaneously, and the only difference now is that there's two sets of gatekeepers not one and by that i mean since the internet has largely been turned into a four market venue past web 2.0 which is you know been kind of now a 10 to 15 year project to really monetize the web which uh as a side note makes it not work as well on a lot of ways like it like go look at facebook or or uh Twitter and try to even do a basic fucking search function and it completely falls apart. 
but nonetheless, um, we're kind of double censored. We'd always expected to be censored by official gatekeepers on major networks who mm -hmm. have a consensus they are pushing. That consensus is broadly speaking in line, actually a little bit more with the Democrats than the Republicans, but not a lot more because there are certain issues on which the, the media actually doesn't fully comport with the Democrats base on. Uh, but we can get censored also on these platforms pretty easily and, and arbitrarily. Like we don't know what the standards are being applied to us. Anyone who touches the C word, and I'm not going to say the full C word because of the likelihood it gets your, your episode not just demonetized, but pulled down. Mm -hmm. uh, the C word that starts with C and ends with Ovid. Um, mm -hmm. Even when they're debunking yeah. misinformation. Yeah. We'll, you know, we'll see what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, I've had disagreements with other media figures in the past. I'm actually not as much of a free speech absolutist as... Uh, Doug Lane or Ben Burgess, for example, um, in that I think there's always been, there has always been a limitation to, to speech based on effect. Um, and so I'm not crying over something like uh, lawsuits for lawsuits 10 years ago, forcing Alex Jones off the air, for example. But there is a sense in which the arbitrariness of this makes it very hard to operate i will say one thing i do and i've never been censored actually on on youtube is i don't monetize so i don't have as many things to i i take money directly from patrons and because of that um when they're going to demonetize me i'm not monetized in the first place right like it, yeah. it um but not everyone can do that if this is if this is like your day job it's not a good idea um the other thing I would I would say, like I do see this, I agree with Cuba that there's been a continuity on parts of the censorship angle, but I do think the other thing we get caught in is there's interpolitical fighting, not just between the Republicans and the Democrats, but also between different kinds of media. Yes. Um, and how this is going to dominate. And a lot of times we think we're outside of that media cycle, um, but we're kind of not. For example um on the left regardless of whether or not you like one of the main news at uh conglomerate podcasty guys run by a millionaire comedian or another news network podcasty guy run by a different and seemingly uh more reactive millionaire comedian you will both note that every one of these people come from the legacy of air america radio Mm -hmm. and their funding streams are downstream from Democrats, all mm -hmm. right? And that's just a fact. This is not me criticizing them or casting disparage, disparagements on them because this is, this is like where you get your money from. And if you don't get your money from that, you're getting your money from a foreign state. I literally sat down with uh, J.G. Michael, and we were talking about all the people we knew who entered journalism who ended up working for some state-sponsored program somewhere, mm -hmm. Um doing and it was because like if you wanted to do investigative journalism you pretty much had to take money from a government all right because the local news bureaus were not investing in that anymore unless you were deep into the associated press and so any source of funding that you have that's going to bring you you know enough to run a media operation and for those who don't know 
um, uh, we can run a media operation like this on a shoestring budget, but the next scale up, even a little bit up, yeah. you start dealing with you start dealing with needing staffs and stuff, and you're talking about well, you need an investment fund of a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? Like it's a huge difference between mid-tier podcaster, next-tier podcaster over like can I fund a staff, like a real staff, and can I have I, investors? And I don't think people really understand what, when it comes to like actually breaking news or actually having like journalism where you're doing checks mm-hmm. on the valid- validity of what people are writing. You need a staff for that. Um, sublation, for example, you can't just publish your opinion. There needs to be, <laughs> there's an editorial process. Um, things need to be fact checked of, of things you said. Um, and not every, uh, yeah. your Substack doesn't need that. And, and we see this in Substacks. I mean, Substacks is a, is a way to monetize this. And that's where Substacks have gone that way too. I mean, however you feel about Green Greenwald, and I think it's politics have always been sketch, and I'm on the record mm-hmm. for that. Thank you. Um, I will also say that the moment he got on Substack and what he can afford to do with that has meant that he's had to take a lot more money, a lot more, a, a lot more questionable money, and he doesn't do the investigative journalism he did 10 years ago. He doesn't, even though he's, you know, not even based in the United States, he doesn't do it anymore. All right. Um, it's way cheaper to respond to stuff on Twitter. And that's also what journalists do. Now, what does that have to do with us and the censorship problem, right? Well, we we it's hard for us to overcome. Like, let's say we, we do have this editorial line and we are trying to push it. Where the hell do we get our news from? Like, like I have to read. Like, I, I've told people how I get a lot of my news, but it's literally now reading financial reports because financial reports are more honest. Like, no, that's uh, where I'm at. <laughs> I think that the... Um... I think that the issue is if you're looking at journalism to provide you with news, if I want to understand something that's going on in the world, and granted, I'm, I'm a consultant guy professionally, a uh, lifelong nerd, um, I read the relevant World Bank IMF reports and I de- detranslate for neoliberal. Um they don't have a lot of insights, but they do have a lot of data. And yep. that can be very telling and very useful in um, deriving better better predictions because your model doesn't have to adhere to um, Washington consensus orthodoxy. But that's a ridiculous lift for any uh, person who isn't, you know, recreationally doing analytics, right? Yeah, um, this this is something like deep nerds do. You do it as your profession. I do it. I used to do it as part of my profession, so it's a habit. And I do it with law news too, as someone said, because law news is pretty decent as well. If you read for lawyers, not for the public. But who who the fuck is going to do that on their own? I mean, like particularly because you have to know how to translate the neoliberalese, and it's something that you. It's not. No one has incentives to teach you. Like. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean like, I, I, there's no book on translating from neoliberal into normie. Like, no. It, no. Similarly, um, there's no getting around the fact that this is a boring process. It is not fun. Um, and you have to be pretty 
damn curious or interested to go to those lengths to get some accurate data. To and you have, to have a couple bu- you have to have a couple bucks too, because you know the New York Times costs money, Washington Post costs money. Um, You'd actually be. It's it's less um, because most international organizations have a mandate to publicize and distribute their reports. Mm. You can get it for free, but who's going to tell you that? Who's going to show you how to do it? Who's going to? It's the even when the financial barriers are removed, the technical ones are extraordinarily high. Yeah, I was about to say, it's either paywalled or you have to know how to read it. And, like, there's been times even, you know, I know stats. I've had, like, four classes on statistics, and I've tried to disaggregate this stuff for my for my audience. And there's times where if I'm doing it on a fly, I'm going to make a mistake because I'm trying to disaggregate stats that are hidden in some Bureau of Labor Statistics report and compare it to something from an IMF report and then look at, you know, some kind of back third tier substratum you know there are other there are specialists on youtube and stuff who do this for free who who can help you and they they don't tend to get censored because no one listens to them that's the other thing like um i don't get censored a lot because frankly a lot of people don't understand what i'm talking about so (laughs) like it's just true i'm sorry i'm sorry Uh, and things that are uh, would be considered treasonous and uh, unbearably deviant in mainstream media will get brought up as uh, perfectly reasonable uh, conclusions or arguments or hypotheses if it's done in a narrow enough uh, professional um, society. So like the intelligence community um, will among themselves talk much more freely about um, NATO interference in Maidan, for instance. And that'll splash over into uh, professional political scientists. Um, But again, boring, difficult to get. Mm -hmm. Quinn, you have something you want to add? Um, We can't hear you. You might want to unmute yourself. Uh, I can't, I can't hear you. Oh, there, uh, there you go. You can hear me now? Okay, cool. Um, so honestly, pretty similar to what's already been said, but um, I think that what a lot of people, I, I think uh, I saw Strom mention this in the chat, but like the the super capitalist news sources are usually better. Like uh, you can read The Economist or The Financial Times and like they're the enemy, but also much better journalism like it's it's better fact checked it's better researched they actually like go out and talk to more people um partially just because they can afford to um they charge more so they can they make more um and you can get like actually accurate and in like up-to-date information um but it's not like it's not packaged in a way that's like digestible for a lot of people. Um, and it is paywalled. Like you gotta, I don't know, what's the, it's like 12 foot ladder is one of the extensions that you can use to get over it, but it's, it's really a pain. Um, and sometimes you can get it through your local library, but, um, 
New Republic Library stopped carrying it, I think. An another thing I was thinking about when when I, I so today before the show I went and rewatched the same thing that inspired me to sit down and write all six thousand words of that uh, of that script that you guys will, will hear and see sooner than later was at the end of the the documentary that I watched when the question got asked to the filmmakers who were interviewing this this wrestler New Jack um, what about him they said what about him. He seems like a horrible man. What about this person did people like they were fans of? And they said something that I found very interesting. They said, well, he was real. And people wanted something that was real. And when I heard that, I thought about the rise of someone like a Donald Trump or even a Barack Obama, for that matter. Uh, there's almost uh, Horatio Alger narrative to Barack Obama that never really existed. And this this wrestler never was the badass uh, from the inner city that he claimed he was when he was wrestling. It was always a character. But the fact that people assumed that this is real um, was was kind of fascinating and embraced it as real. And when you watch the news, even if you watch stuff on left media, there's an idea of something that's real that people want to grab a hold on to that they end up making even part of their identity. And you see these like massive online fights and even the way news looks uh, in 2022 is just a sea of pundits. Uh, it's no longer, you know, Tom Brokaw reading you the newswire. Um, it's just a pundit giving you his opinion. Uh, what do you have to say, uh, Barn? I was thinking about that because I've been studying this phenomenon of hyperpartisanization um, because I've also been been fascinated by hyperpartisan identity being tied to actually a decrease in effect on politics, not an increase. So like, and it's not just on the left, like even on the right, what the average base person believes has almost no effect on what they actually do. And that didn't change in Trump either. Mm -hmm. Right. But the identification with that, with that has increased and that's increased with the media. Um, there's a bunch of theories as to why, whether or not it's like terror management, um, because the more powerless you feel, the more like you are to project your identity onto something else, and that leads to a cycle. Um, whether it's like um, an attempt to have an effect by believing in something, so if, so you can feel like you are, you know. But however, every way I go to explain it ends up being like, well, you have a largely politically ineffective mass who can project something onto their consumer choices and. And I include in that their their partisan political identity because it's effectively a consumer choice. Um, it's not really about principles for most people, and, and we can complain about that and talk about what you need to do to to do that. But I'm I'm going to tell you that like, as much as we say that people want you know you know an alternative media that tells them the truth, that there isn't a lot of evidence for that. Like you can make an okay kind of side gig career out of doing that. 
Um, I do kind of, <laughs> but, but like you never, there's no evidence that you, that I've not seen anybody break through doing that unless they were already on a major platform. And I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie network, but what happens to those people tends to be either they get corrupted or they are used to, or you see them break down in real time. Like it, it's just the way the, that media circus tends to work. Um, I mean, it, someone, someone asked in the chat, they said, well, isn't all, aren't all political shows in some way, shape or form kayfabe. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of gets in, I don't agree with that because to me that gets into the whole, like Noam Chomsky, everything is manufacturing consent. And I don't think everything is manufacturing consent because sometimes well, there are just bad actors, right? Well, um, and I think that it's important to distinguish here between the purpose that the people who engage in it have of a given activity, a program, uh, a channel, versus how, from a large-scale structural analysis, we might put it in a um, leftist political framework. Meaning, if this is the society we live in, then all media is part of the veil of ignorance. We all continually contribute, even those who dissent, by demonstrating that dissent is tolerated and possible in the grand illusion. But that's only if you abstract so far away that you aren't, don't even leave room for um, individuals to like lead their lives and, and try to do, try to say the truth as they see it. Um, the people who are engaging in it may be doing so in absolutely good faith, but um, that systematic view makes everything seem hopeless or rather uh, complicit. Pascal Robert, what, do you, what, what say you? I mean, this, this is a very, very, very sophisticated question that I think bring forth a conundrum. And I'm looking at this from the perspective of someone who tries to use media as not only a vehicle to convey news, but to give political education. And for me, the challenge becomes, how do you do that understanding that people might take your intentions as a threat to the state? And, and, and I am not absolutely sure how you maintain your integrity in a space when we have such a cynical media space right now, mm-hmm. such an absolute cynical media space that has already demonstrated the willingness to punish people for deviating from the party line. I, and, I, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It doesn't make me want to stop anymore. I want to continue with the endeavor. But at the same time, you know, what are the prices people are willing to take for going that far? And are people willing to pay those prices? I mean, we did a show recently uh, with a scholar of the Iranian left to give a good kind of picture of Iran currently. And also, he came back for almost a little bit of a refresher of the show he was on originally, Excander. Um, 
of uh, of Iran post the revolution in 79. And there were multiple comments about U.S. empire. Even though we were talking about Iran, people still wanted to hear about U.S. empire. Now, we can play to that fascination with having to hear that America is bad. But that wouldn't really be the show we were trying to do. We were trying to explain, A, the current situation with the regime in Iran and what happened to left figures in the revolution in Iran. But even trying to get some sort of nuanced explanation can get lost in what people want to hear. And part of the idea of wrestling and why I wanted to use wrestling and why it's fascinating to me is everyone knows it's fake. There's not one person that's watching this and saying this is real. And the fascination I have is with wrestling in the 90s where it started to get extremely hyper-violent. Still predetermined matches, but very violent. As if this violence is reality. And that's how I feel media looks. We're going to get a little more real. But is it really? So don't understand. Go ahead. Go. Um, uh, uh, MT, did you have a point? Um, I did. Thank you. I just wanted to say that that is a, a problem that you see in comic books. And then it bleeds over into the comic book movies. There's only two ways to be adult, and that's to be gritty and violent, or <laughs> to be sexual. Mm. And it's a shame that that's the, the binary we have to play in. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it leads into other media as well. Well, yeah. I think that, um, and picking up on that, there is this adversarial thread that runs throughout American culture. Um, if you, you can contrast the legal system and find the same thing. Um, the, I, you're pushing against very powerful currents if you want to, um, get away from some kind of adversarial spectacle as the basis for understanding the world uh, in an American audience. Mm-hmm. It's hard to... I mean, it, just think about it in your personal life, right? Like, um, there's a phase where you assume that every conflict is somebody else being an asshole, uh, never you. And then at a certain point, you realize that, oh, wait, sometimes it is me, and you have to adjust reciprocally with other people, not just have it your way, even if you are correct, technically, often. But... um <laughs> Does, the culture doesn't model that, right? Like, you don't have um, figures that are like, oh, wait, I thought I was doing the right thing, and I wasn't. This other person is right. I apologize. Um, you don't have um, people kind of changing their opinion unless it's a Tulsi Gabbard-style um, heel turn, which is itself kayfabe, right? Oh, it's uh, beautiful. I mean, you couldn't write that in the script, right? It's the, also the, the obvious. 
Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is like when you when you talk about a nation where there's legitimate bad actors, it can't exist without U.S. empire. And it's to it's to invert American exceptionalism. And U.S. is the greatest and always the ultimate worst, which makes them the greatest. Yeah, it and, also deprives everybody else of agency. Yes. There's one world which is either um, organized um, as a hellscape because the Americans want it or um, is a beautiful freedom garden or the best that we could hope for because Americans are virtuous. But the foreigners only exist to be pathetic refugees to be saved or, you know, orcs to be mown down. Mm. Mm. I, I mean, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I talk a lot. Well, I think it's a part of an outgrowth of the way we're trained to consume news media as Americans. God forbid you actually learn something about another country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that our friend Khadija on our show about Ethiopia was talking about. I asked um, what would be good news sources to learn about Ethiopia and the conflict going on there. And she basically said, you need to be in community with the people. And that is how you will really know. And as leftists, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But a lot of us can't handle sitting through news about other countries. We have to find a way to bring it back to ourselves. And that's why the exceptionalism is inverted, Mm. in my opinion. I think that's an excellent point. And it it also links back to the difficulty time-wise in terms of um, technical ability, access, of even getting news about other countries. Um, if you have to rely on what's available and what's in English, then there, you know, you're you're um, drawing dead right at the start. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. Quinn, did you want to add something? Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's it's hard to like put it all exactly into the right words because. It's, I don't know, I, I have a hard time trying to, uh, like, get into other people's heads. It, it seems like more work than it's actually worth, and, like, what you get out of it is, like, it not really worth it. But um, I, I do think that a big part of it is just, like, I, I think they're still thinking in, like, the terms of Empire. Um that they're they're very used to like the the American public. I, I was trying to find a quote in here, but um, couldn't find a good one in time. Um, the the American public is very used to like thinking about foreign policy as looking at like a map of the world and being like, okay, this is a, a place over here. What do we do about this problem over here? What do we do about this thing? And and that like kind of global dominant view is the way that you think about the world when you are an empire. And it's not the way that you think about the world when you're not like you think about who are the countries around me? Who are the countries who have direct control on me? What is like the, um, and I'm saying like me, it's 
a lot of times these are like state actors and it's absolute brain poison to like identify this much with states like it, it's a great way to just um like get like the pat socks or like the i don't know that like people who like think russia is good because it's not <laughs> the Russia's u.s soviet union like <laughs> the soviet union 2.0 well before yeah. before before we uh end tonight i know kuba is has to go uh vader's having a uh a ball today i know it's a there's a special gathering in the uh the ballroom wing of the uh, death star yeah he told me to wear a special tie i'm sure that that is completely innocent and not ominous in the least <laughs> well kuba thank you very much for hanging out with us um we're gonna go on for a little bit longer i will see you sunday 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 see you sunday peace Coop. Get out of here. A lot's been said. Um, One thing I'm going to say about the in the community stuff um, is that I'd be careful with that, actually, Um, because you don't know what community you are intruding on and you don't know the context for it. So when you're with the people, it's not just being with the people. I'm with the like. I hear people always talk about local activism. I'm, I, I do a lot of local activism. If I only listen to the community of local activists, I would be a fucking moron. All right. Not because they're stupid, actually, at all. And I think people often misunderstand when I say stuff like that. They think I'm calling people dumb. And I guess I kind of am. But I'm not. I don't mean that in, in that they lack intelligence. I mean their incentives are very particular because of a bound set of choices that they have made. And if you mistake that for the entire community, you're going to have a myopic view. And it's very easy to do. And I know this because I was abroad for like a fourth of my life. Um, It's very easy to do in a community in which you don't have the total context, even if you speak the language, right? The people speaking to you are going to have a very particular community bias, a very particular set of things that they're coming to you with because you, as an outsider, do not have an organic understanding of that community. So when you say you need to go to the community for, with the people for knowledge, I'm with you, but I'm also putting a big caveat on you probably don't know all the divisions in that community, and you Very probably true. can't. I mean, like, if someone asked me now today, like, what are the divisions in, in any community in Mexico? I'm going to be explaining to you for three hours, and it's probably going to be wrong because I haven't lived in Mexico for six years, right? Like... And I don't say this to make it sound like it's impossible to do because you can get good information and you do have to talk to people. And the number one thing I always tell people that you should be able to talk to people in any social class and understand them as a socialist uh, in your own community. And most of you can't do that. All right. So when you think about the fact you can't do that in your own culture, in your own community, what are you going to do when someone else is? Right. Well, you'd have to leave your house for that, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, and we're not educated. We're not educated to do that. There have been comments about the way the education system plays into this, and I'm a teacher, so I can speak a lot to that. Um, It does. We are trained to model other minds in a particular way from the moment we enter school, and particularly when you get into higher education. Um, I will tell you one thing that you know, as a 
as a person who comes from working class background, I have to often forget what I was taught in university to bring myself back to the ability to communicate some of the things I learned in university to people who didn't go because the way I was taught it limits my model of a way the mind works and limits the way I can communicate that. So I always talk about having to unlearn speaking in grad school, right? Because that's my natural inclination. And I'm a teacher, so I constantly have to explain all these things in a way that like a 14 year old can understand, but it's not natural to me because the way I've been trained. Well, this, this feedback loop reverberates throughout our society. All right, so we can coexist together in the same society and not really have access or understanding to what other people do. And it wasn't conspiratorially set up, it's an accident, but it's a very useful accident for the powerful. And, and when we talk about that in regards to like world news, oh my God. Like I think that's another big important part that that it's not so conspiratorial, and I do actually say that in the in the main movie that's coming out that you know, I don't believe Joe Biden and Donald Trump are sitting down writing scripts together. Um, also, I want to add that we are not doing a champagne room, and this is all a free show because movie night is tomorrow night for patrons. Pascal, I know you want to add something. You better. For the people in the back? For, for all these Negroes. So the question, here's the question then. Why is it that no one is willing to step up and actually realize that these questions need to be asked and change the way in which we perform our job as media, as media creators? Why are, we, why are we appealing to the base, most common denominator of our audiences instead of stepping up and changing the actual the paradigm? I, I I did some okay. This is where it gets interesting. So a lot of history went into this research. I plead. I wanted, and I'm not trying to say this so you guys think any better, less of me. Every video essay has research. It's not like I had an idea and I said f it. Um, the research that I did into the history of news and why it actually looks a little different is hard to to. You can't just do a Google search. Why does news suck? Um, as much as I tried, nothing came up. But the history of modern day news is, is quite interesting. Um, everyone here on the screen, even the young Quintern, is familiar with 60 Minutes. You guys are going to be quiet on me now. Uh, yeah. 60, yeah, minutes. 60 Minutes. <laughs> 60 the Minutes. The wasn't enough for you? <laughs> I didn't even see a nod, dude. Uh, 60 Minutes is a pivotal point in mainstream news, in news in general, because it took about 10 years or so where 60 Minutes became profitable, and there's a couple things that happened. 60 Minutes becomes profitable uh, because news was a loss leader. It was totally fine that news lost money. The old guard that owned Big Three Networks were like, this is part of our corporate responsibility to have information on air because we got all the, we got guys like Jack Benny making real money. We don't really care. And you guys spend as much money as you want. You can do documentaries. If you go back, there's a few people that have curated some of these. There's some amazing documentaries that the big three networks used to pay to do. I'm talking like getting the pulse of Mississippi before 
uh, it was legal for black people to vote. Um, the, the budgets were kind of endless. Once finance capital gets into owning these networks, they're like, we have no losses on our books. You guys have to get off of it. 60 Minutes became profitable um, because they changed the way they did their show. It was not it was it was show programming in the sense of, you know, we have to compete with uh, sitcoms and, and Bonanza and stuff like that. But the the heroes are going to be news anchors or journalists, if you will. And they're going to tell stories that are going to be a little bit more evergreen, maybe even celebrity based, but they're going to hit you on an emotional level. And the moment that becomes profitable, you know, we're in a copycat world. Right? Capitalism loves to, to turn more profits. So then you get later on 2020, later on you get Dateline, but you get these news programs that have to hit an emotional chord. And even if you look at the way even online left media works, Derek Varn came on here less what about a month ago, Derek, mm-hmm. and said two names that we're trying not to say. Yeah, we're not going to say them. And the emotional response literally backs up what he said, the main point of what he said. That clip had more views than any other clip we've ever done, literally because of two names. There's an emotional response. And how do I continue to get that emotional response? Well, first of all, I have to dumb everything down to good guys and bad guys. Everything has to be Red Dawn. Right? Who's Patrick Swayze is what you know people are trying to figure out. You guys want to? So I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been thinking. Of, I did this research project about two years ago for my show. Uh, originally, it's for Pop the Left. It ended up uh, being done, and I used it in an interview with John Michael Cologne on Varmblog about a year and a half ago when I first started the thing. It was like a long interview where I talked about why media never made a lot of sense to me because it it if you think about it. It's not productive at all. It's not productive to general surplus at all. It's not like like even advertising is kind of not. Um, and in most places where it existed, it involved heavy state involvement for a long time because there's it's not profitable to set up. It's there's no way to recoup profit. I mean, you're recouping profits off of ads, which means you're like three three tiers down away from any original profit motive, etc. And the financialization of the 70s kind of exposed this mm-hmm. um, because the one other thing we think about the uh, the big networks and the way broadcasting worked before is they were granted kind of monopolies because of uh, how not really profitable a lot of this was. But they also owned other businesses, and that's where a lot mm-hmm. of that money came from. And as the profitability crisis in the 70s hit, there's a reason why um, – 60 minutes kind of explodes then there's a reason why i mean and they were aware of it if you go watch i, I mentioned the movie network twice but it's literally about this it it is it is and the stuff it predicts like from the standpoint of is that movie's like 1976 and it predicts stuff that we're seeing now 
like political entertainment, radicalism being used to support commercial capital, um, monetizing real people's personal breakdowns, etc. Um, and it all being done for investment capital and rents um, and a kind of a way to clean money is it is driving a lot of this and so one of the things that when i talk about this to people we always talk about this is like it's 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 in a bubble on its own and that makes sense because we can only deal with so much in our head as a general rule mm-hmm. um but none of this is in a bubble on, on its own like i you know i i have to- pointed out that the current tech situation regardless of why you think it happened happened under a particular set of financial constraints that was particularly good for certain rentier investments and the state our finance um our, our monetary policy can shift that overnight and then our entire media landscape will reverberate in response to that and i think it actually is right as we speak right now you will notice that the kayfabeization that we saw in the major networks has spread down further and further and further to like micro celebrity infights and then further down from that because we're all downstream from that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not exempting myself, little academic, quasi-academic podcaster and YouTuber with, you know, um, the reach that I have. Um, because I'm still downstream from those funding streams, even though I'm not getting any of that money directly, it's mm-hmm. enabling me to reach my audience. So, and it's real, it's reality. You cannot participate in this even really far downstream and get guests to your show even without being tied to this network indirectly. This is something we kind of do have to think about in regards to what we're doing and why we're so limited on it. And I think you're right that 60 minutes is a perfect example of that. Like you can't loss lead forever and corporate responsibility is only going to give you so much thing. And we talk about what, well, why did the finance heads come in? Well, because in the seventies after the oil shock, right. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether or not you think it was natural, whatever that means, our, our policy, whatever that means, mm-hmm. You had a negative profitability dip in everything. You couldn't have a loss leader, like really, yeah. you couldn't. You couldn't. Like you couldn't do it. And and I want to I want to get your guys' feeling on this. And we talked about this Saturday. Um, I actually had some inside information on what went on in L.A. And our take on L.A. was very very different. When I talk about L.A., I mean the L.A. City Council. Mm-hmm. Because I the framing of it is racist Mexican political faction, racist Latin political faction. And it makes it sit like these were bad people and everyone else suffered. But whatever was said in that room, what do you think was being said in other rooms? Everyone was fighting for the same small piece of, piece of political pie. Everyone. The black coalitions were fighting. The Jewish coalitions were fighting. This is during redistricting. Do you really think that the black caucus in L.A. was sitting around, you know, talking about how much they love their Mexican neighbors? Like, let's not be silly here. 
it was presented in a way that was going to make people click on uh, news stories, buy papers, if they're physically buying papers, and engage in a conversation that isn't about the real player in all of this, which was USC. Right? It has to be about racial infighting, which of course exists. Los Angeles is a hotbed of racial tension, especially between black people and and Latinos. And it, and it's not speculation. So, you know, it's that's what I talk about when I mean kayfabe. If you're engaging in that conversation strictly as these people said this thing, therefore they're bad, sure, sure. But that's not really the story about the L.A. City Council. And when we talked about racial coalition politics, you know, back to the whole like, well, no one really cared because they wanted to hear a certain narrative. And Pascal, you were sharing us uh, other other sites uh, stories about what was going on, which was extremely different from what we were talking about. You want to? No, absolutely, man. I mean, no one was really trying to rationalize what was going on in L.A. in terms of the context of the actual racial historical politics and the racial history of the area. They were just trying to look at it as a, a flashpoint of racial conflict, which doesn't help resolve the actual actors on the ground, which are the citizens. And uh, I was glad you were able to get that inside confirmation that we had a better understanding of what was going on because we were not trying to peak, we were not trying to appeal to people's emotions, people's emotions. We were trying to find out what was going on. Because mm-hmm. as I was Where getting information, trying... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. Weren't they also trying to create coalitions against progressives? That yes. I saw a take that you know. Yeah, that was another part of the larger story. I don't I don't think people really understand what really goes on behind closed doors, so it's a lot of speculation and people love the drama. Well, they also love very easy big to 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 basically do the the whole to part fallacy all the time to like extrapolate from a type of a person to an individual because of a history that may be 100 or 200 years old um, based off of our current social perception of what someone's category is generally in race and i see this race talking here right now like and and on on one level what is being said in the chat about like latinos coming from a settler colonial blah, blah that's all true on another level on any given latino you're gonna have a racial admixture and an actual history that's really really divergent um and i'm always fascinated by how selective we are about that mm-hmm. that's not and it's easy as fuck to game i'm gonna give you an example today just that's unrelated to anything particularly controversial about la i was watching a a, a white australian journalist talk about the need for the end of whiteness and how china was often perceived as a need to the end of rightness, but that the way that it asserts power is actually pro-whiteness and that to be Xi Jinping's actually more white than 
And I was like, what What are you even do? This is a real editorial. I am not making this up. I read it today. Was it? Hold up. I don't. There was that. Uh, I feel like it might have been in Black Agenda Report that uh, Wages of Rodinger essay. That was not in Black Agenda Report. It was not? <laughs> that Cedric Johnson wrote? No. Which one was that in then? That was in. No, no, not Compact. That was in. Um, not non non site. Oh, all right, non site then. Yeah, that's about the about as far away as, from Black Eyed Ginger. No, they were not fucking with Cedric on that one. You talking about Cedric Johnson shitting on the whole whiteness studies? Yeah, I yeah. I could not remember where I read that, but every time I I hear people just like go off onto unproductive conversations about whiteness, that's the that's the essay that I think of. Can you get into that a little bit, uh, Cedric Johnson's? Because you got the angry face on, so you, you really need to lean into this. <laughs> Cedric Johnson's take on uh, whiteness studies. Are you talking to me? Are you afraid? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Quinn seems more motivated than I am. No, Quinn, I mean, whiteness studies is a, is a theory that comes out of academia that basically is a, an animating reality to white identity in and of itself. Divorce from material products. It's, it's. I, I think some people will argue that it's postmodern in its origins that dictate the way white people believe behave over time. And Cedric is saying that basically it's divorced from material political history and it creates categories that exist outside of actual historical reality and causes us to look like, look at white people as a collective, functioning unitary body throughout you know four thousand years of time, and it doesn't really help. In terms of really analyzing how power structures work. Yeah, and I think a lot of the that essay was just that the, the discourses are not productive. That. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a reason why he's picking on on Rodinger though, because Rodinger's Rodinger's not coming out of like normal whiteness studies, um, uh, Afro pessimism or anything. Rodinger was a Marxist, um, and he was picking up on theories of E.B. Du Bois and what. What Johnson's basically saying is that this framing it, just the allowance of like you know the the wages of whiteness, which is which is a phrase from W.E.B. Du Bois, um, that it's that that framework automatically is too easy to misconstrue, even if you know that Du Bois's politics, for example, um, what you know he explained a lot of white hostility to. To, to black workers in the South, purely in economic terms, actually. He didn't think it was her- inherent to whiteness, but that the cultural accumulations and privileges, therefore, were like a sociological reality to protect a very precarious proletariat um, from losing even more status. And there's 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 actually some pretty good material reality to believe that that was the case. But the moment you start talking about privilege, which moves it into a nebulous framework, and e. D., uh, W. E. D. B. Du Bois did, Johnson is saying you're making one step towards these kind of whiteness studies, reification of whiteness, reification of blackness, uh, moving it outside of a, a historical category, um, and also erasing real differences like. Uh, we all know the dumbass arguments about the Irish were slaves and all that stuff, which is all false. But the impulse that that comes from that I think we do have to deal with is that they weren't wasps. And that when you look at like collective wealth over time 
and you compare even subgroups of white people to other subgroups of white people and then adjust for their class position, it doesn't look like all the white people equally benefited, right? Well, because there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. That's very rooted in materialism. There's a very, very good book called The, 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 the Ethnic Myth. That does a very good job of debunking all of these myths that we have about how oh the Jews did it themselves and the Italians did it themselves and these ethnic groups came with skills. What we have to realize is that when these ethnic groups came to the United States in even in the 19th century, some of them came from different locations with different skill sets. If you do a comparison in the 19th century in the 1880s to the early 20th century of Jews, Italians, and Irish Americans, in terms of which percentage had high level marketable skill sets within a 10 year period of immigration, 66% of Jewish immigrants had high level marketable skills. The Irish, it was less than 16%. For the, for the, for the Italians, it was something like 14%. So the accumulation of wealth over time isn't some mystical, magical, cultural phenomenon. It's because these folks are coming with different from different parts of the world with different skill sets that allows them to compete in American society that that makes the capacity to accumulate wealth over time. That's why, for example, we people talk about Caribbean immigrants. There's a difference between the Caribbean immigrants that come to the United States in the 60s and the ones that come in the 80s and the 90s. The ones that come in the 60s were more educated, they were more professional, they came from more middle-class backgrounds than where they were than the ones that came in the 80s and 90s who were more poor and that's why you see different types of actual class integration into capitalism mm -hmm. amongst even those different ethnic groups amongst themselves. Totally. I would I would actually there's a good book on the Jewish part of this called The Jewish Century, which goes into the long durée of um, uh, of why, for example, particular skill sets and particular education habits was helpful for Ashkenazi Jews in particular when capitalism developed and developed uh, in the 20th century. Um, it's uh, it's a weird book because it's loved by Zionists and anti-Semites, so take that as with, with a grain of salt. But I think the history in it's actually pretty decent about the results of being systemically shut out of the accumulation of land, and then you know developing tangible skills that that would really help when you start having financialization. The the point that I'm getting to though here is that. We're moving between levels of abstraction a lot of the times to conflate people and confuse them. And it's really easy to do that. And ironically, I think a lot of what this does is it sounds like we're being very radical, but we're actually being very, very moderate to conservative. And I'll give you another example. I saw someone in the chat talk about how privilege defines class. Doesn't, actually. From a Marxist perspective, it does not. Um, your privilege is a result of elements of your class, but it isn't what defines it. What defines it is your access to your ability to socially reproduce freely or not, meaning your access to capital or not. Can you control it? Or are you controlled by it? All right. That's not actually a privileged position. It's not about special categories. That's about what you have or don't have and what you do or don't do. All right. The, the conflation of that with privilege is actually something 
that makes it where like legal categories or whatever can also be seen as classes are even like mild differences in income can be seen as classes, which is highly divisive to class solidarity. And that's done on purpose. This is the one time where I will say some of this shit's done on purpose. This is done knowingly. Like this is, I, I'll give you another example. This is, it's old. Um, I always bring this up when I talk about Carnegie. Carnegie broke up the Manx and Cornish uh, mining strike by bringing in black workers. It's kind of the first example of what capital, unquote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what it did is it reinforced hostility to African-Americans, to the black community, and it also pushed the Manx and the Cornish to identifying with white people, all right? Because they didn't beforehand, because they weren't wasps. Um, and they didn't refer to themselves as, as white specifically before that, right? That minor strike pushed that community more and more towards identifying with the, the, the powers that be who were oppressing them because they were afraid of competition being brought in specially. Like this, and Carnegie knew what he was doing. He had a consultant help him come up with this plan and he got positive press for it even at that time. This is an old game. This is not to say there isn't real racial divisions between, you know, between the class and there isn't real national nationality divisions, class divisions coming in, et cetera, that we try to erase with race. I mean, this is a lot of what you guys are show. But as a media, when we're talking about media, this is a very simple narrative to sell people. The actual history of this is hard and it's not easy. And you can't just throw out one simple stat and be like, well, that's done right? Because you actually have to know extensive amounts of history to really contextualize this, for multiple this, countries even. This is why this, this, the, the use of ethnic pluralism and mm. culturalist narratives to explain poverty works so well for conservatives, because they don't require sophisticated analysis of historical phenomenon, because you can say, oh, it's their culture. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're defective because of their culture. Or they, 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 their culture is defective, and that's why they're poor. So it becomes this tautology, this cyclical tautology that never gets to the cause of the fact that it's the political economy and the way these people are integrating into capitalism that explains why exactly they are not being allowed to actually move into a place where social mobility is normative. Mm. What say you, Quinn? Um, I mean... I say I, I'm mostly just playing 40 chess to get these more educated dudes to give me a reading list for free. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't know. I, I think that like, I, oh God, there was actually, there was a dude that was on, um, I, uh, I'm like 95% sure it was on Von Vlog. Um, that was talking about classes not really existing as um, like, or individuals not existing in a class. Uh, classes existing more as abstractions that are useful for like mobilizing around and um, uh, really useful for creating narratives, but like individual people, um, it, it gets really difficult to try to like bang out like what is the exact class of like one dude. And if like, you know, if you put some money onto like a stock trading app, does that change your class? And like it, it, a bunch of stuff that just doesn't really make any sense. 
Yeah, it was Stefan Hamill on my show. That's and, the one. Uh, he wasn't saying that class doesn't apply to the individual, but he says that in the individual, you might be in multiple class positions at multiple times. Actually, Marx talks about this in theories of surplus value. Like, if I'm a teacher and I'm working for the state, I am an unproductive worker. But if I go literally down the street and do a couple hours at a private school, I'm a productive worker. Not because I'm producing anything less socially necessary at any time. It's effectively the same. But in one case, I'm helping someone build profit and they're profiting off me. In the other case, I'm actually subsisting off of, off of profits downstream because of tax refunds. So the same person can exist in multiple class positions that's why we talk about like proletarianization and seeing yourself as part of the proletariat not as actually being like a one-to-one -one worker because you're not like you're not always that all right also proletariat and worker are not always the same thing either which is a complicated question i'm not going to get into and uh, we're about a thousand ways away, uh, away from media, but I think it's useful to think about it that way in the sense that when we're talking about like the working class, we're talking about the category of people whose existence is dependent upon wage labor and they're producing uh, profits for capital in some way. Um, are they facilitating that production, which uh, gets you, which is another definition Marx puts in in Capital Volume 2. Um, but this is nerdy shit. I mean, to be completely honest, this is like, Marx could be wrong about this, or this could just be semantics. Our issue has to be like, how do we, we make sure that we don't, when we talk about broad spectrum truths, like we talk about settler colonialism in the Americas, which is absolutely a truth, right? Calling someone a settler individually is kind of beyond, beside the point. It's like, unless you are actively settling an area being a descendant of this, um, it, it's just a fact that you are, but you may or may not be as an individual contributing to that. To see the contribution just by being who you are, like just because you are a descendant of said people, um, you are automatically totally identified with this category means that there's no way out there's no way to bridge solidarity. And also there really isn't an answer to the question. All right. So for example, how do you deal with land back uh, when you want, if you, if it really requires the removal of everybody who's not indigenous to the United States. Mm -hmm. And I don't know any indigenous person who actually believes that's what should happen either when you talk to them about that, but that is the way it is often framed by enemies of it. Um, mm -hmm. Because it sounds like a massive ethnic cleansing pop, uh, proposition to remove literally 99% of the population for the benefit of a historically wronged and historically genocided 1%, mm -hmm. right? That's a hard sell. Whereas if you frame it in a different way, you can get different, like you can frame it in terms of including people giving justice and autonomy and this, that, and the other. I don't love the justice word, but, but still you can do it in a different way and set this up and you can make it you can make it not about individual identity. The media project, to tie it all the way back to the kayfabe part, though, is invested in you being emotionally invested in their narratives. And the best way to do that is an immediate identity, which is why, as the, the fraction of American nationalism kind of breaks apart, you will see more and more racial appeals. I think that's inevitable. And mm -hmm. I don't just think it because 
I've I've seen it in other societies which are not necessarily settler colonial actually who've just been exposed to uh, my example my, my example comes to mind is Lebanon or or Egypt mm. all right mm. playing the cops off of uh, off of different groups of um, of other Egyptians and it was it was something that was easily done as a political football when I was in Egypt and I've definitely seen that in Lebanon too so this is not just a settler world problem um and so I bring it up because this kind of identification is really easy to motivate people with and it's really cheap you don't have to know much you don't have to invest much you don't have to you can just look up some superficial stats throw them at people, get people highly emotionally invested, confusing the general to the particular, all right? And set them off. That's also how you build racist. By the I mean, it's the same it's the, it's almost the same move. Well, Pascal, do you have anything to say in closing? No, I'm good, brother. Uh MT, do you have anything you want to add? Oh, no, this was a, a really good conversation, another banger. Yeah, I just want to want to address one historical point. Somebody was talking about um, Arabs. how Arabs were invaded. Uh, um, culturally speaking and genetically speaking, culturally speaking, yes, genetically speaking, no. Most of the Egyptians are like most of the British in that they're actually 80% of their DNA is from the local populations. They weren't killed. They weren't just invaded like that. Um, so the analogy doesn't really work. It, um, the cultural and the cultural acclimation of, say, Islam, if you want to go to that point, took like a thousand years. So they, they weren't just wiping out Christians all the time. Like that. So all these narratives that you have are actually projecting our narrative of modern settler colonialism back in the past. And that's a bad, bad thing to do. Just as an educational thing, I need to like in, intervene there because that's we can't have those kind of nonsense that perpetuates a whole lot of misunderstandings. Quinn, do you yeah. want to add something before Eric Varn gets us yelled at? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I I think that there's a lot more to be said on uh on media, uh, and I'm I'm sure that you know we'll have another like what three hour show where we <laughs> yell about <laughs> shit. um and and Varn will continue to uh, impress us with his very big words. Um, <laughs> there's uh oh. It's uh, probably not worth getting into now, but there's a fun uh, that there's a NYU professor Maitland Jones who mm -hmm. there's a there's some media coverage of that. There's just a lot of like just outright things that the the Times, the Post, like a bunch of the big coverage of it just is not correct. Mm -hmm. um, okay, Cold War is out here lying. You know I'm. Ha this is just my face. <laughs> <laughs> Quinn is like, just hard I could, all the time. Quinn is just hard. I could all the be time. outside. Uh, I could be watching Netflix. I could be. What is it? I got. Um, I got Ultra Kill on Steam. Uh, they're trying I to go play in that. For those listening like, to the show, they're trying to say Quinn looks mad. Quinn. Quinn is from the Bay. First of all, <laughs> shout out. And he's just hard. How's the Bay made him? They just made him that way. <laughs> Peninsula suburbs really. <laughs> Why do you think Tom Brady has the same face? 
hey, yeah. Peninsula. Peninsula made him that way. Wait, Tom Brady's from Peninsula? Tom Brady went to Sarah. Wait, for real? Where did, where's he from? He's from Redwood City. <laughs> oh, shit. Know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, he went to Sarah. <laughs> and uh, Barry Tom Brady, Barry Bonds. <laughs> well, I know Barry Bonds was like a suburbia kid. Yeah, Barry Bonds went to Sarah. Uh, uh, Lynn Swan, the great Lynn Swan went to Sarah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, I'm um, only why not uh, learn if you have any comments? Derek Varn's email is. No, just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Derek will respond to your comments. So if you leave a comment, he will uh, he will respond back in a very polite way. <laughs> or I'll call all my audience stupid and, and stop streaming for months. Or pre-record join everything. His, join his Patreon, um, and then <laughs> then you can get personalized insults. If you, uh, that's true. Actually, wait, Chaz, you have a, do you have different tiers? Yes, I do. do different but tiers like... the, okay, so if you join at the highest tier, <laughs> uh, I don't know what the highest tier is, but the highest tier possible, Barn will personally record a. A one-minute audio segment yelling at you. <laughs> he, he will not research you at all. It might not be specific to you, but it will be a one-minute yelling hey. that nobody else gets to hear. That's that's what the whole that's what the whole live show is going to be. It's going to be uh, Derek Barn and Anna Kasparian yelling at each other because they're the two loudest people on the fucking internet that love hollering at the screen. So the two people, this is gonna, we're gonna actually, we figured it out, and they're just gonna face each other and holler. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it, Derek. I know you saw the notes for the live show. I'm sure you're ready. For I, I did, oh. I did. It's, it's funny actually, because Anna Kasparian is one of the few famous people who followed me <laughs> on uh, Twitter back before I even had my own show. Mm-hmm. And it was like, and I couldn't figure out why. Like, I was like, what did I do? I mean, <laughs> the infographics. She, um, she liked the yelling. She was like, <laughs> I like this guy's chutzpah. Who, who else insults people over economic infographics, right? Like, <laughs> Whatever intern runs uh, Richard Wolf's account. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, they, shit. Yeah. Can you imagine? I met Richard Wolf a couple times. He's very nice. Yeah, he's incredibly nice. I met him in uh, and the same the same time I met uh, Michael Brooks. Uh, um, oh, at the thing in Boise. Yeah, the thing in Boise. Yeah. I refuse to believe Richard Wolf and his wife aren't yelling at an intern right now. Wow. <laughs> the wolves right now are just they're just yelling at one no reason. You just have an intern like so that they are nice to everybody else. They just abuse one yeah, intern. Just they yell at the, the interns just chained up in the wolf basement. <laughs> Just getting hollered at for all of capitalism's failures. <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah. Richard uh, Wolf is so nice. I actually felt bad for slagging him once. So, you know, <laughs> Richard Wolf came on the show once. We had Wolf. It was a good show. He's a good guy. We had well, the since Wolf. there's so many new viewers that came on right now, uh, we're gonna play that. We're gonna go out with the uh, with the trailer for the new video essay. Should be coming out hopefully. Before Thanksgiving. Got her fingers crossed. 
Have you done any more new title cards for it, Quinn? Have you done any uh, cards? I'm still in contact about that. I'd, I'd like to, but I haven't figured out which, which titles I should do. Um, I just wanted to say, for the last uh, 40 minutes, you've been watching the Champagne Room for free. Ooh. If you want to get these <laughs> with every show, you can join at the This Is Revolution Patreon. Look at Quintern! Always stay close. I, I did, like, actual broadcast radio. I know how to get my ad breaks in. Look at Quintern! Quintern gets it. This is why. <laughs> Look, I want, I want before before I play this, I want everyone to understand this. I'm going to say this again with the, with the full house. There's more people watching. I'm going to say this again. I love, legitimately love the people I get to do this show with. It is a treat we're constantly learning stuff all the time. Pascal called me the other day, kind of, kind of on a high. Sometimes we get on these guys. We do a couple good shows. Um, we're like, hey, this is fun. <laughs> it doesn't suck. Um, I talk to Toussaint quite often. Um, I definitely, you know, talk to Varn. And it's a, it's. I hate to say the word blessing, but it's kind of a. It feels like a gift sometimes that all these people get to fall into your lap if you will, and you get to create this stuff with them. Um, it almost feels magical. Like the way the video trailer came together, um, it was kind of, it was really cool for, and then uh, when I hit Quinn up to add the title card, it was like, yes. <laughs> but, but to be able to do all this, to, to present this show the way we were able to present it, um, we need that we all work together it's a it's an amazing family of people we get to bitch at each other share ideas we all learn stuff from each other um my perspective has been enhanced greatly by the man next to me on the screen so uh once again i have to i have to stress how much i appreciate Everybody, even the, the the woman that's not on the screen. Don't gender me. There is a yeah. Love love all y'all. So uh, let's watch this uh, trailer. It's impossible to thank everyone that is responsible for this achievement, which is about to begin. Ladies and gentlemen. This is the main event of the evening. For the American people whose thirst for understanding and a better life has made this venture possible. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. To create a positive force in a world where cynics abound. To offer those who want it a choice. The key word in that phrase is entertainment. For which, for which we, we think, think that you, the, the audience, audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. For the cable industry, whose pioneering spirit caused this... Oh, dude, that sucks. Did it freeze? It froze. Great step forward in communication. We also, we also think, think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. We will bring the better understanding of how people live and work together. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. I dedicate the news channel 
for America. through the facade of fake news. In spite of this, we remain addicted to the political theater that is presented by independent and mainstream media outlets. The veil has been lifted as a general public understands that politicians lie, multinational corporations finance capital influence politics. Information is partisan, and we can, with the click of a button, get fat at buttress our own beliefs. Yet knowing all of this, we still can't seem to pull away from this political burlesque. Most especially, we would like to thank you for watching. Thank you guys for watching tomorrow night for patrons movie night. You guys decide the movie. Go to the Twitter. This is Revolution Twitter. And you can vote what we're going to watch. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Ninja 3 The Domination. Or Night of the Demons. Last I Tech Ninja 3 was winning. Uh, it'll be a fun movie night. And let's go out on the Quinterns exit video he made for us. We are Quinn. Yes, out. Am I? Oh, out. There we go. Oh, God. <laughs> God. Oh, no. I missed, I missed the unmute button three times. I went to go click it, missed it three times. Oh, God. We are out. Thank you.